Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Hugh Hodges. Based in Peterborough, Ontario, Hugh is Chair of Cultural Studies at Trent University. Hugh has written extensively on African and West Indian music, poetry, and fiction, with his research focusing on cultural resistance in its many forms. Hugh is the author of The Fascist Groove Thing, A History of Thatcher's Britain in 21 Mixtapes. In the book, Hugh explains the late 70s and 80s Thatcher era in the UK through the urgent and still relevant songs of The Clash, The, special, the Specials, The Au Pairs, The Style Council, The Pet Shop Boys, and nearly 400 other bands and solo artists. In this interview, we're going to talk about Hugh's background and career, his book, and his experience as an author working with an independent publisher. So thank you very much, Hugh, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Len. Uh, one thing I should uh, say right off the top here is that Hugh and I actually know each other. Um, I don't remember for how long it's been. I started hanging around in Peterborough about 20 years ago when my brother started working at Trent there. So it will be 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And you uh, don't look a day older, Len. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess, thank you. And yeah, and so you're actually the first kind of, I think you're the first guest we've had on the podcast in like 250 episodes that I actually sort of know personally. So I'll try, I'll try and stay as, as professional as I can, uh, as I usually do. Uh, but we might sort of slide over into in jokes once or twice. Fair um, enough. Uh, so I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how the circuitous route you had to uh, being a professor and uh, writing books. <laughs> so I was thinking about this because uh, as becomes clear in the book, um, there isn't much to my personal story. I've always been a bit of an onlooker, uh, which is where my writing comes from. But yes, I grew up in the UK. Um, until the uh, the 80s when my family started splitting its time between the UK and Canada. So a lot of the stuff I'm writing about is stuff that I knew about, that I was hearing about, but very often wasn't experiencing firsthand. And, and the music was part of how I heard about it. It was literally a time uh, in the very early 80s when everything I knew about the Spanish Civil War was because of the clash. Um, and then for a long time after that, everything I learned about the Spanish Civil War was because the clash had made me go and look it up. Uh, so the, the, it's always been my connection, not just to UK history, but in some cases, political history in general. Um, I wound up in academia more or less by accident, uh, which is something I, I rarely tell my students. But uh, uh, several failed careers in uh, cartooning and uh, playwriting and acting um, and a failed attempt to get into the advertising industry um, all led me inexorably into academia. And here I am, uh, second book after uh, a prolific career of two books um, with the fascist groove thing. And where did you specifically, I might, it might become relevant, but where specifically did you grow up in the UK? So I grew up in the south of England, uh, Sussex specifically. Uh, which is another uh, another thing that sets me up as a bit of an outsider or as an observer. Um, as far as the 80s went, Sussex was a, a comfortable place to be. Uh, the real damage was done in the north, of course. Um, so in many ways, uh, I um, am taking a position or have come to a position uh, or have always felt most comfortable in a position uh, criticizing the uh, uh, the very the very people I grew up with, um, the, the 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 Thatcher supporters in the south of England. 
Yeah, we'll 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 get to that, uh, and, and 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 particularly the kind of regional distinctions, and also the, the the idea that you know we could one can talk about Thatcher's Britain, but there were you know many different experiences of that, which is something you write about, and in fact, part of what your book is about is is addressing sort of like this sort of story that or element of a very important dimension of that time that is in a, in a sense maybe being lost to. The, the the memory uh, that people have of it, basically because of what dominated pop culture uh, throughout that period. Um, but just I'm before working. we go on to that, one, one more thing, just one more thing about you. Um, uh, where did you do your PhD and what was it about? So, yes, my, my doctoral work I did at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, and my, uh, my work at that point was on uh, post-colonial literature, specifically uh, Jamaican literature. Um, my doctoral thesis, which I, which I then turned into a book, was about Jamaican spirituality and Jamaican poetics, which led me to write about Bob Marley, which led me to uh, pay more attention to uh, West African musicians like Fela Kuti. Um, so there is a sort of continuity from that work to um, my current work, but there is definitely a disjuncture at some point. Um, at some point, I, I realized I, I couldn't continue writing about uh, West African fiction comfortably uh, and uh, traded it in for a, a new research field. And uh, speaking of your research, so it's uh, inter- sort of interesting, I mean, particularly to me, but I, but, um, uh, I think there might be a lot of people who are like, how, how in what what does what does a cultural studies professor do? What is cultural studies? And, you know, how is it that people have carved out a space where you can do academic work on, you know, punk music and, and reggae and stuff like that? Uh, the, uh, no one answer to this one, of course. Um, the, the short answer is it grows out of literary studies. In the first instance, cultural studies grows out of a a decision to apply the same kind of critical analytical techniques to other forms of culture that had already been applied to English literature. So in Britain, particularly, you get people studying and critiquing television and film, um, even uh, sports um, and other cultural products using the same techniques that had been developed to, to talk and write about fiction and drama and poetry. In the United States, um, cultural studies has taken on a sort of c- celebratory form, uh, a celebration of popular culture, particularly. Uh, in Canada, I think we lean more towards uh, the British model of cultural critique rather than cultural celebration. Um, I think what I'm doing in this book falls somewhere between the two. It's not an uncritical uh, approach to popular music, but it isn't in the first instance a critical analysis of popular music. And one of the um, big figures of that in, in the UK would have been someone like Stuart Hall, for example, if I recall correctly. No, yes, absolutely. Um you're going to need to pause because names are not going to come to me. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, I'm sort of my, okay, I know. I know there are names I, I need to, to actually, insert here. I am going to give give an an in joke that we have between us and my brother, which is um, whenever uh, we can't, we, we're we're sort of do that o- older person thing where you sort of are telling an interesting story and you get hung up on the name of someone you can't remember when the name is absolutely irrelevant. Uh, to what you're saying, and we always just yeah. say Doug Duggerson. So in this interview, if if we get hung up, we'll just say Doug Duggerson. Um, Fair enough. Uh, 
And so, yeah. So, um, uh, so now we've talked a little about you and your origin story. And I was wondering if you could talk about the origin of your book, the fascist groove thing. When did the idea first occur to you uh, to write a book about Thatcher's Britain through the sort of lens of all the sort of this to, to, to narrow down kind of punk songs written about Thatcher and that time? Yeah. So, uh, like like many things, this is hugely overdetermined. Uh, in the first instance, I think. Uh, this is the music I grew up with. This is the music I loved at the time, or a lot of it at any rate, and a lot of it I still love. And the op- the idea of going back and spending time with this music was just in- intrinsically uh, gratifying. In some ways, I suspect it's the academic equivalent of well, it's a sort of midlife crisis, the, the academic equivalent of, of buying the, the car you fetishized and couldn't afford when you were 15. Um, and in fact, I have wound up accumulating a record collection that I could not possibly have sourced or afforded uh, as a teenager. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I think that is a big part of why I started the project. The other part of it, the other really significant part of it was also in a fit of nostalgia, I started reading histories of the 70s and 80s as they started to come out. Well, about a decade ago now they started to they started to appear on bookshelves and one of the things that became immediately apparent was a general inclination to rehabilitate thatcher uh, to f- forgive her, her worst excesses and take a kind of position that as um damaging in some ways or as harsh as her policies were in some ways it was all necessary and worked out in the end um and repainting thatcher as um, a strong, uh, an ultimately proven right historical figure. If you've seen The Crown, I don't know if, if this is something you've descended to. Or, um, there's an episode of The Crown uh, focusing on the, the 80s and Margaret Thatcher figures in that played by Julian Anderson, very, very well, by the way. Uh, but it's a pretty good example of the kind of thing I'm talking about in that Thatcher is portrayed as a strong, misunderstood, scrappy, um, some sort of middle-class feminist uh, up against a snooty upper class uh, who did what she believed was right and stuck by her guns and were all better off for it. And um, that's not what I remember. That's not what a lot of us remember. Just, just, to, just to jump in there for a moment. So this is this is awesome. You sort of did the great podcast guest sort of did the segue for me into sort of like you know what what who was Thatcher and what was Thatcher's Britain, which which I'd like to ask you about in a moment. But very specifically, um, when you talk about this sort of rehabilitation of Thatcher's memory, there's two things I'd like to say about that. First, I moved to the UK in 1999 from Saskatchewan, so I knew Britain from books and TV and it was 1999 and like you could div- people were divided by their opinions of Margaret Thatcher at the time. And it, mm-hmm. I'd never experienced that kind of stark division in my own life before. And this is also a country where like, you know, what paper you read, uh, or at least at the time, like you, people, not only did you, you, you sort of knew what someone was all about by the paper they read, because that's why they chose that paper in order to show you who they were to some extent. Uh, but the, 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 the whole Thatcher thing was just like, very bracing um, to, to me to sort of experience just through other people's claims about it. Um, and when you talk about this re- rehabilitation, I just want to, there's a couple of things I could pick out from your book, but um, 
one, there's one striking passage for people. And so for people who maybe they've never heard of Margaret Thatcher, maybe never heard much about the UK or anything like that, uh, let alone the 70s and 80s. But like here, here is here's a line from Hugh's book. Addressing the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1988, she, meaning Margaret Thatcher, argued that, quote, the biblical precept to love our neighbors as ourselves is also an imperative to despise them if they fall below the standards and beliefs we have accepted. <laughs> the thing I love about that episode is she's actually lecturing uh, clergy of the Church of England. Yeah, yeah, well, there's that, there's that element to it as well, but like, is also an imperative to despise them, like to speak openly in this way about despising your fellow citizens. I mean, we're, we're, we're picking an example here uh, and this was from sort of late, late Thatcher after lots of enmity had been built up and, and things like that and resentment. But, you know, imagine if, you know, you were one of the 50% of unemployed people in Scotland, uh, because partly, at least from your perspective, because the the one employer in your town was closed down by this government and then being told that by the your prime minister of your country that you should be despised by other people because the bible says so i mean this is this is this is quite a quite a time to live through um so with that with that i guess again I, you could talk about it for hours your whole book is a treatment of this but basically can you set the stage for us a little bit about what was life like generally in the uk in the late 1970s who was margaret thatcher and what happened around the time she was elected so there's a general perception and this is, again, a sort of history um, being rewritten. There's a general perception that things were falling apart in Britain in the in the mid-70s. And it did at times feel a bit like that. Strikes uh, were common. Inflation uh, was significant. Uh, we, we recently have been talking about the, the rise in inflation as a return to the, the late 70s, early 80s, but it's nothing like it was in that period. Uh, unemployment in Britain hit the million mark for the first time in the early uh, 1970s. So there was a sort of sense of things not going right. Um, but objectively, um, economically and socially, Britain was really doing pretty well in the mid-70s, even into 75, 76, when the, the punk kids started complaining about the opportunities open to them. Um, there were opportunities. The Clash uh, famously complained when they had this long list of jobs that were available to them that they didn't want. Um, those jobs had all vanished 10 years later, right? So uh, in 79, there was famously... Um, a very, very bad winter politically uh, for the Labour Party. It was the winter of discontent. Uh, there were strikes of, of all kinds. And um, when the election was held the next year, um, uh, Thatcher swept into power. Uh, it was it was a proper uh, crushing defeat for a, a Labour Party in disarray. Um, and the Labour Party remained in disarray for the next 15 years, frankly. It's one of the main things that kept Thatcher in power. Was it wasn't her, her doing. It wasn't her policies. It was the utter failure of the Labour Party to be useful. So her agenda included 
um, radically reforming or radically disassembling uh, what came to be called the welfare state um, at the social level. She famously had this dictum that there's no such thing as society. Uh, she firmly believed that people really need to take responsibility for themselves. And if, if they, they couldn't pull up their socks, that was their problem. But at the uh, national and industrial level, this also involved pulling the plug on all kinds of nationalized industries, uh, the coal industry, the steel industry, aerospace, uh, British Leyland, uh, all, all of these companies that had uh, for at least a decade been a, uh, a form of a social safety net. So, uh, economic safety net, uh, providing unemployment in parts of Britain that would otherwise have been devastated and were, in fact, economically devastated in Thatcher's Britain. So uh, she moved pretty decisively after the first couple of years of her uh, tenure as prime minister to start disassembling uh, Britain's economy and Britain's society. And as I say, um, much of this has become background to a kind of triumphalist history in which what she did was she saved the economy and she um, uh, rescued Britain from its, its the malaise of the 1970s welfare state. And to go back to that episode of The Crown, in, in that episode of The Crown, the, the miners' strike that happened in 1984-1985 is completely absent. It's just written out of the story. It's, it's irrelevant as this minor footnote to the, the Thatcher story. Um, but for millions of people, that strike in 1984-85, it was a long strike. It was what, eight, eight months long um, across the entire winter, uh, is axiomatically and uh, symbolically uh, the, the, the entirety of the 1980s in one episode. Uh, the the miners were uh, fighting not just for their jobs, not just to protect their their income, but for a way of life, uh, for their communities, for their kids, for for an entire working class way of life that was being obliterated by Thatcher's policies. And Thatcher's um, defeat of the miners, and it really was a defeat, a military defeat of the miners. Uh, was the, the point at which Thatcher's Britain uh, really set in. <laughs> at that point, it became Thatcher's Britain. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot to talk about there. And first of all, um, you know, I, no, I haven't watched The Crown. Um, <laughs> I was shaking my head earlier, but it, it is fascinating to ha have a sort of representation of that time, not make a big story out of the minor strike. I mean, it's something that I heard about, like, you know, when I moved there mm -hmm. a couple decades later, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and it, uh, for anyone listening, like those, those kinds of moves, whether they were explicitly deliberate or not sort of ought to be treated as deliberate cultural moves uh, when yeah. you encounter them. And that's part of actually just, that's part of what the world of sort of cultural studies is, at least in the Canadian and, and British forms are kind of exist, existed do to say like the way stories are told actually like is, is extremely important. It's, it's particularly stories that we tell about ourselves in our own past. 
And uh, just just two things I want to mention. So first thing is uh, you mentioned, you know, kind of it was kind of like wartime action. The Thatcher government, and this was before that they were elected. And you talk about this in your books when in the section where you talk about the strike started building up their coal reserves in advance of 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 pushing um, the, the strike. The strike was self-initiated, but uh, as, as you talk about, also perhaps mistimed and things like that. But the, the, the government was actually like preparing for this battle by yeah. stockpiling coal. And this when we talk about war, like, you know, you've got to think about like, you know, when you read books about, you know, ancient Rome and the sort of, you know, decisions that people were making at a high level about grain or what have you, like yeah. the coal ran British industry. Uh, and in the same, actually, probably a good analogy would be the, the sort of panic in Germany over the loss of natural gas from Russia or something like that. Right. Like and then the, the, the like, you know, in advance of going to war, if, if Germany had wanted to go to war with Russia, they would have stockpiled natural gas in advance. In a similar way, the Thatcher government stockpiled coal to prepare for this. And um, but also with respect to that sort of like revisionist history and stuff like that, when you talk and they know the sort of idea that and these are all very complicated things that that's during the Thatcher era, she's she saved Britain from itself, as it were. You have this rather stark statistic in the book where you say the number of those living in poverty in the UK increased from 5 million in 1979 to 14.1 million in 1992. So, there, I mean, there are, as a former London investment banker, I know there are stories one can tell about the prices that need to be paid for getting out of the way things were. Uh, but, you know, the idea that this was some kind of great success uh, that during her tenure, poverty tripled uh, yeah is is a complicating factor <laughs> to yeah to take the 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 miners strike what's well, take 84 85 as uh, symbolic of the the uh, of the decade and of the way it is remembered um the the mood in the uk in the summer of 85 was frigid it was a really unpleasant tense place to be uh, the, the minor strike had affected everyone uh, and and divided the country late in the summer of 85 uh, you get the live aid concert at wembley stadium and uh it's that that gets remembered as axiomatically um Britain in 1985, I said, Live Aid was the thing everyone wants to remember. Um, and it really was a, a, a moment that gave people permission to forget the miners' strike. So we're moving on. That's done. Now we're going to save the world somehow by flying Phil Collins back and forth across the Atlantic. Uh, so this, the, you know, the reality of what Thatcher was doing displaced by this fantasy of saving the world. Uh, and that is, um, I quote, um, oh, this is another, Doug Duggerson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, why is it not coming to me? Because I need it. That's why. I might have it in my notes if you tell me what the quote is. Uh, the singer for everything, everything but the girl. Um, uh, it's not Ben Watt. <laughs> It's, it's it's the other half of everything but the girl, um, Tracy Thorne. Whew, that's a relief. Okay. <laughs> Tracy Thorne writes about how 
Live Aid and the Royal Wedding and uh, the Sloan Rangers and all that lark has has become the shorthand that media use to talk about Britain in the 1980s. Another term that's often used is loads of money, loads of money 80s. Um, and Tracy Thorne says that's just that's just not what I remember. I was never part of any of that. I don't recognize that. What I remember is uh, the miners' strike and the res- and uh, resistance to the Falklands War and um, the uh, misery of economic collapse in the North. Um, uh, and that is what I wanted to uh, recall um, in in this history of Britain in the 80s. Uh, yeah. And so actually that sort of now speaking about music. So we've asked you to I've, I've asked you to set the stage sort of politically and, and socially. Uh, but now I need you to do more work and set the stage uh, musically. So what was the music scene like in, in the in the late 70s and early 80s? And again, like I, I just just to sort of um, there's all sorts of amazing details about the many different music scenes in the UK in your book, which are just sort of sort of fascinating. And we can go from everywhere from, yes, Phil Collins starting a concert in one zone and a time zone and ending it in another. Uh, but then you've also got bands like in the late 70s who were like, I, I think, advertise in a magazine and say, send us a blank tape and we'll record our mm-hmm. music on it for you. And this is an actual story that you said that you tell like, and then we'll send it, we'll send it back to you. Um, uh, but the, the, the UK had this, like, you know, one might think, you know, there's, there's sort of, you know, Johnny Rotten on the one hand and Duran Duran on the other, but the UK had this, you know, just amazing, amazing, diverse music scene in particularly in ways that would actually be quite unusual in the sort of North American scene. I think particularly with kind of comedy songs and, the phenomenon of top of the pops and things like that. So give, I know this, this is yeah. asking you a sort of book length question, but uh, imagine you're talking to someone, you know, born in the 1990s, or actually that's getting a little bit long enough, born in the early 2000s in North America, who's like, what was the UK scene music scene like in the late 70s and early 80s? Uh, I, th- I think I could approach this. Um, and I think I can approach it as, as um, the evolution of the book in some ways. When, when I first started writing it, I started writing it because popular music in the UK from about 76 to 86 particularly, but right up until the the end of the 80s, engaged with politics in a completely unprecedented way up till um, the uh, the mid-70s, 76, 77, say. um, The idea that popular music would write about unemployment uh, and tenements and um, the Conservative Party, uh, fiscal policy, uh, the educational system, so on and so forth, about miners' strikes, about the Falklands War. Uh, It was pretty alien. Um, Popular music was then, as it still is, 99% about boys and girls and the things they want to do to each other, which is fair enough. But it really did strike me that popular music in general in the 1980s in Britain engaged with politics, uh, both lyrically uh, and activistically. Um, Is activistically a word? I I talk about the the anarcho-punk scene particularly, where uh, the band was conceived as an activist unit very often an anarchist activist unit. Um, so the first draft of the book uh, was 
pretty determined to see this as a universal phenomenon in British popular music that that for some for some un, unanalyzed reason uh, uh, British pop reacted to Thatcher's Britain musically. Uh, my my editor Ramsey Kanan pointed out that okay, all of the stuff you're writing about is at least in some ways connected to punk, uh, and that the the punk end of the musical spectrum was far more dedicatedly political than than anywhere else. So uh, I think in in the final published version of the book, you can see how uh, all of these threads in British popular music uh, emerge in one way or another uh, from punk in the uh, 76, 77, 78. Do you want me to say a little bit about some of those threads? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, Jackson, just, 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 just to pause you there for a second, though, for people listening, like if you if you if you didn't know that sort of like there were songs about unemployment in the UK, for example, this band UB40 is named after an unemployment benefits application form. Um, you know, like this, this it's, we actually like, it's, it's very deep in all sorts of things that you might actually like, you might know, like, again, you, you know, if you've heard of the band UB40, you know, the name of a like early eighties unemployment benefits form right. in the UK. Yeah. Like that's, that's how sort of wide this stuff goes. But anyway, yes, please uh, pull out the threads. Uh, okay, so you may at some point have to cut me off because I, I can literally go for hours on this. Um, at the risk of making the Sex Pistols sound like some kind of uh, phenomenon, um, there is built into the Sex Pistols the two main threads in popular music in Britain in the late 70s and through the 80s. On the one hand, uh, they were... Um, influenced uh, by um, commerce. Uh, they were, in the first place, put together by a shop owner. Malcolm McLaren had a, a clothing store called Sex, and he had the idea of putting together a band to promote his shop. So in the first instance, they were a kind of boy band, uh, a bit of a perverse one, but they were put together for commercial reasons. Um, so you've got that strand, and in, built into that is also a kind of art school uh, str stream of music. Um, through the 60s and into the 70s, art school was a popular destination for kids who didn't really want to get a job yet and certainly didn't want to go into the army. And going free education uh, at art school uh, was a viable alternative. So Britain had a very lively art scene um, because of these uh, thousands of kids who went to art school and then had to do something with it or did something with it, very often started bands. Um, so the kids who followed um, the Sex Pistols around were interested in the Sex Pistols, not so much for the music, although that was part of it, but because of the opportunity uh, to explore new fashion uh, statements. Uh, punk in its first flash was very much about fashion, anti-fashion in some senses, but very rapidly fashion. And you can see how this stream of uh, popular music, of, of what, what was always part of punk, 
flows into um, the new romantic scene and the futurist scene and synth pop. Um, you think about uh, Culture Club and Visage and Adam Ant, um, uh, Spandau Ballet, all of these bands who are very much about really dressing up, really looking good, really dancing. That's actually, and, and really selling records. <laughs> uh, band as business venture, band as business enterprise. Uh, the the band uh, uh, Heaven 17, who actually give the, the book its title, um, The Fascist Groove Fang was, was one of their songs. Their first album, the cover depicted the band as businessmen. Uh, they're all dressed in business suits. They're on the phone. They're making deals. They're composing their music in a way that looks a lot like doing office work. Uh, they're, they're, they are selling product. They're taking on the music industry with their own British Electric Foundation um, and uh, going to beat, beat the uh, music business at its own business. So um, that's one thread. The other thread, it picks up on um, some of the undertones, perhaps, in, in the sex, but also or some of the implications of what they're doing. The fact that they were singing in their own voices, very distinctly working class voices. The fact that their um, graphic sensibilities um, uh, with ransom notes, uh, uh, ransom note lettering, um, highly sort of subversive imagery uh, suggested a, a, a kind of um, mu music as uh, political commentary, mu music as, as, as commentary. And The Clash, of course, picked up on this immediately and expanded on it massively. Uh, for them, uh, the, the band was a gang. Uh, the last gang in town for the clash, the only band that matters and um, uh, making music became as much about saying something important, representing the kids as about um, entertaining or dancing or, or enjoyment. Uh, Joestrom rather famously said, you know, he, he, as long as he's getting the point across and people are, uh, are, are hearing uh, it, it, that's more important than whether they're having fun or not. Um, so that strand uh, leads to all kinds of varieties of punk and post-punk. Um, uh, Oi and street punk pick up on the working class character of some of what the Sex Pistols are doing. Um, that leads into all kinds of uh, strange corners in the British psyche um, uh, or str strange political corners of the British psyche. Yeah, just to just to jump in there. So it's um, it's it. There are two things that I kind of want to try and pick up on. One is, um, uh, you know, what punk started out as and what it turned into is sort of a big, big sort of 
narrative arc in in, in your book um, and and in the time. And you've got a quote from someone I didn't actually note down the name of who said it, but you mentioned like, you know, as long as the point was getting across, you know, who cares if it was fun, right? And so you've got, you know, songs about unemployment or like jobs I don't want and what have you. And, but this quote is punk started out as a movement born out of no fun and ended up as a product whose existence was no threat, um, uh, which is, which is an interesting thing to think about too. Like, and that, that evokes a sort of a big theme of the book that you're explicit about at certain points, which is like, what is the point of all this this anti-establishmentarian music mm, right yeah. are, are do people really who sing it really believe that it's going to have an effect actually many of them explicitly we said you know this is just a part of a greater thing and you know don't don't sort of go to the concert and think you've carried out a revolution uh thereby um but the other thing i wanted to bring up with that 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 sort of duality is there also in in when you said dark corners of the british psyche it's there in, in thatcher the figure herself mm-hmm. and what you call the Thatcher simulacrum. And I'm just looking at my notes here, but you know, what, what got me thinking about this is when you talk about the British psyche is the British psyche and accents. Um, mm-hmm. And you talk about how Thatcher had uh, reinvented herself repeatedly first at Oxford, where she shed her Midlands accent and her past. And, mm-hmm. and then as junior minister, changing her voice again, but rediscovering a useful version of her past. And, you know, you, you go on, but talk about how like a lot of the things about the hair and presumably the dress and the handbag and all that, like this was thought through, like this was like a, yeah. a I mean, you mentioned oh, yeah. your own foray into advertising. This was literally advertising companies like, or a company advising her on what to do. And this was all I gather, like, as you said, no, no one, you say in your book, no one wrote too many books about Edward Heath or, or, or Wilson. Or Jim uh, Callahan. Or, yeah. or Jim Callahan. But then this, this, Thatcher figure appears and all of a sudden, you know, all these punk musicians and everyone else wants to write songs about her. And it's partly because there was this, the, the whole thing was a performance. And that was very, in, in my view, like very, there was something very un-British about that. Uh, Un-British um, and unprecedented. Uh, nobody in politics had considered image that way before. And I don't, I don't really pursue this in the book, but th- there is an implication here that Part of the reason the popular music managed to uh, write about politics, managed to, to speak, is because Thatcher made it easy. Um, you didn't have to address uh, something complicated because Thatcher was so big and so obvious that she just made a really easy target, a shorthand that even the simplest, most repetitive pop song could pick up on. Uh, once Thatcher stopped being interesting, pop music lost interest. Uh, it, it's a fairly dramatic drop off after about 85, 80, 85 86, uh, when uh, Thatcher's attention turned to uh, things that the kids didn't really care about so much. Um, and, and Thatcher ceased to be a shorthand for the things that were troubling them. They just stopped writing about her. Uh, that actually reminded me, this is slight kind of digression or sideways move just for a moment. But um, just before we started uh, talking today, it, it one thing I was sort of thinking about, like, you know, life, like the memories of what the 80s were like that we have now and what it actually was like to live in the 80s and, you know, dating ourselves, obviously. Um, but um, one of the features of being a sort of young person in North America in the 80s was the drug thing. You know, if you went if you went to the the arcade to play a video game, which was an innovation at the time. Uh, you know, you might, the first thing you might present be presented with is an ad, don't do drugs, you know, and you might be like, well, now 
didn't know what drugs were, but now I guess I have to find out, you know, um, uh, uh, (laughs) those sure sound interesting. And if, you know, the, the, the powers that be are telling me not to do it, that might be something I really ought to look into. But anyway, was there, was there this again, that's sorry for the, maybe a digression, but was there a drugs, an anti-drugs craze in the UK in the eighties? An anti-drugs craze. I, I'm, I'm going to sort of back off from the question a little bit and put it in a bigger context. Okay. Because what you're reminding me of is the fact that uh, Thatcher was, again, all kinds of things that she managed to promote. <laughs> um, she had this perverse ability to um, uh, in- increase the kinds of behavior she found most abhorrent, uh, particularly things like pornography. Uh, she as you can imagine, as as a um, properly Victorian-minded person uh, had no time for pornography, but everything she did economically <laughs> uh, created this flow of European pornography uh, into Britain. Uh, and then the introduction of um, uh, satellite television, another flood of pornography. Um, and just all all the way down the line, she, this is part of the rewriting of Thatcher as some kind of highly effective, determined person. Is she was stunningly ineffectual uh, at uh, achieving the social goals she wanted to achieve, making Britons uh, uh, more responsible, uh, making making them fiscally responsible. Um, the credit card boom in the in the eighties was a d- direct uh, result of of her uh, policies and and had exactly the opposite effect of of her rhetoric. Um, so uh, you you can imagine that um, uh, drugs and alcohol um, uh, uh, w- were similarly responsive uh, to Thatcher's ministrations. <laughs> Yeah, that reminds me of something else you write about a bit later in the book. But, um, you know, uh, our, I think one thing Thatcher did at a certain point was articulate the concept of an enemy within. Oh, um, yes. And uh, again, when you when you think of, you know, that thought, that quote I had earlier about despising, this was all internally directed, uh, not criticism, but just outright attack. And uh, so what was what was from Thatcher's perspective, the enemy within? And did that whole thing, how did that whole thing work out? <laughs> So, uh, uh, Thatcher's uh, career, uh, the successes in her career were largely built on identifying enemies that were as large as life as she was, larger than life as she was. Uh, She was the Iron Lady, so she needed enemies that were as easily defined, easily to pick out of, as easy to pick out of a crowd, um, and as easy to characterize as her. So, the, the enemies within statement came came after the Falklands War when she had just battled uh, Galtieri. Um, and he, he was a wonderful foil for Margaret Thatcher because you know, he, he was the tin pot general, right? He was he, he was a big baddie. Um, and fortunately for Thatcher, a mostly drunk and completely incompetent one. Um, having uh, dealt with that baddie, um, she now needed an, an, a new enemy to, to direct her policies at. And she, she found a few. The, the miners uh, were a particularly good foil for her uh, but because they represented everything she was trying to destroy. 
once she had effectively <laughs> destroyed the miners, she went looking for other enemies within. Uh, the um, labor uh, city councils were were uh, identified as enemies within. The Irish in general uh, were identified as enemies within, particularly, of course, uh, the, the no- Northern Irish. Um, so she just kept finding enemies to fight. Uh, and so the other problem she ran into in the late 80s was she kind of ran out of really good enemies. Um, I, I write in the book about how in the late 80s, after the 87 election, she decided that the next enemy was within uh, was the gay community. Uh, and she just never managed to get any real traction on that one, mercifully. Yeah. And when we're, I mean, uh, you know, talking about enemies within, of course, there there were enemies within in a very real sense of bombings, uh, both both related to you know, Northern Ireland and the gay community. Um, so there was, there was a lot, there's just so much going on there. Um, uh, and I, I bring, I bring up this, I mean, bring that up in particular because uh, you also have a chapter about where you talk about the police uh, a lot um, and the real particular, the relationship that, you know, people in particularly um, particular communities might've had with the police. And in particular, you, you, you're really good about talking about how like one of the reasons there might've been a kind of reactionary panic about the police wanting the police to keep order was a sort of not a kind of guilt slash awareness of what British policing was doing in Northern Ireland at the time. And you didn't want that to happen to you. That's interesting. You're, you're, uh, articulating something that may be implicit in the book, but I don't think I, I, I put as clearly as you do. Um, certainly, um, what did happen in the 1980s was policing techniques. And I, I, I want to put all kinds of quotation marks around policing techniques uh, that had been experimented with in Northern Ireland, the use of, of tear gas, um, uh, heavily militarized policing, and so on and so forth, um, stop and search procedures, things like that. Um, that th- these techniques that have been perfected or at least developed in Northern Ireland, were imported back into the mainland UK to deal specifically in the first instance with uh, the miners and then also with uh, black communities uh, in in London, in Birmingham, elsewhere. Um, what One of the songs I quote at some length is a, um, a rap by uh, Ranking Anne, uh, a London uh, Jamaican uh, MC, and uh, uh, she's—it's it, it's an extraordinary piece because it is um, a, a lengthy and quite uh, complicated argument uh, about the introduction of the police bill in the mid '80s that uh, was what allowed a lot of these techniques to be used in the in mainland UK. Uh, and, and she points it, you know, once the police are allowed to use CS gas on uh, uh, British civilians, um, you're on the verge of, of rebellion. Um, there, you're reminding me of something actually sort of there's something I noticed when I was reading your book, the, the, I got the PDF version of it. Uh, so I've got that up on my screen here. But um, when a song is so there's a there's a line break after police and when you're quoting the title of the book so it says kill the police new line bill <laughs> um, coincidence uh, yes yeah but no that's actually like just on just this again this is a digression that's actually an old kind of revolutionary technique for getting past um censors 
So people will do this. I, I believe to this day in newspapers where you're, you'll have like a broken headline where mm -hmm. like the top part is saying your actual message, but then you kind of get away with it because the dumb sensor doesn't notice what you're doing yeah. with the, but this is an, an example of why like book formatting basically actually can have all kinds of um, significance in the kind of thing I could, we could probably both get really excited about. But anyway, that know that, but this, you know, calling songs, kill the police bill, um, you know, are very, are very kind of, there's a lot of, messaging going on uh in things like that but you know the uh the 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 thing is that like to people who are within a community that isn't policed and people who are in a community that is policed things look very different and you do you do you do um uh, quote uh mc ranking and at length here but you know great great lines like damn have the power to set up roadblock so you better watch out if you poor or you black you drive your car you bound to get stopped you know and this is you know you know, we talk about music and things like that, but these are these are just descriptions of not just these are very pointed descriptions of day to day life and what this things like this police bill actually mean for you and the people, you know. Yeah, exactly. Before we go on to talk about the structure of a book a little bit and uh, we could we could have we could talk about this book for hours, but instead I would recommend people go out and read the fascist proof thing, including to find out the reason that Hugh t chose that title and that that song, uh, which is a great story that he tells near the beginning and, and goes back to throughout. But I can't let you go with talking about something I think I alluded to a little bit earlier, which is there's just this. Uh, what to me was just sort of just this really interesting and unusual element of kind of self-aware fun in uh, the British music scene. Um, and I was reading your your uh, book on my flight back um, from uh, Peterborough. I was vis visiting my brother uh, this this holiday season. And um, I'm just going to quote this whole paragraph because you have you have to hear the whole thing to kind of get it if you're not from there. But um, into this mix, we can add a number of comedy songs that found their way onto the charts in the early 1980s. Kenny Everett got into the top 10 with snot rap performing simultaneously as two of the characters he had created for the Kenny Everett video show, inept leather clad rocker, Sid snot and bearded cross dressing Cupid stunt. It's musically pretty dubious, but done to borrow Cupid stunts catchphrase in the best possible taste. And I almost caused a disturbance when an hour later, I finally got the joke about Cupid stunt. Uh, you could, ne no one in, I mean, just to make fun of, no one in Canada would, ever do that uh and yet this was a kind of like everyone knew what was going on with that and yeah. it was part of pop culture and like even hit songs which i, I just love yeah. that that part of that culture yeah and there's a long tradition of it in britain too um uh, of the the pun that lets you just get away with it um monty python did a lot of that um and it's it's all there through British pop as well, partly because British comedy and British pop uh, never diverged uh, in Britain quite the way they did in North America. Uh, uh, British popular music's music hall roots, um, working class music halls where the entertainment was part comedy, part music, never really went away. Um, the chapter you're quoting from, I, I, I write a bit about novelty songs um those comedy songs are part of that broader genre of novelty songs and um i've been doing i've been thinking think thinking a lot about it since i finished the book and starting to realize that um the distance between something like snot rap 
and never mind the bollocks or anarchy in the UK is nowhere near as great as one might think. Um, there's the Sex Pistols. I'm not the first person to point this out. That the Sex Pistols owe a lot to British Music Hall. Um, Johnny Johnny Rotten's persona is very much built on a kind of mu- music hall personification. But more than that, um, there, there's the, the the working class connection. Um, and on top of that, something I've been thinking about a lot lately uh, that I kind of wish I'd come to as I was writing this book is um, the aggression involved in novelty songs. Um, what one doesn't think necessarily of, of novelty songs as being aggressive. They're usually funny, silly. But you think of something like uh, Black Lace's Agadoo, uh, if you haven't heard it, don't. It is a truly abysmal piece of music. Um, the BBC, th- this may be apocryphal, but the, the BBC are understood to have uh, effectively banned it. Not officially, uh, but to have banned it for being not credible, which really is to say that the DJs just couldn't believe it existed. The thing is, this utterly dismal, dreadful, horrible song was on the charts for the better part of a year. And and it was at the top of the charts for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, one of my friends tells the story uh, of his his wedding. Uh, and their DJ uh, copped out on them at the last minute. They got a, 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 a DJ they didn't know in. And it was disastrous. Um, uh, he played Agadu and actually reduced the bride to tears by doing so. Uh, it was because the song was just so loathsome. And you just have to wonder why the why a song that hurts people is on the charts for that long. And there is something there about... Uh, Boris the Johnson. Pop- there is, well, there is, well, okay, so <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other story. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the novelty song remains a feature on the British charts in a way completely incomprehensible in North America. Um, some of it has to do with the, the Christmas number one and getting something ludicrous to number one at Christmas. Um, but uh, yeah, that, so the, uh, the, the, the unnameable band with the unnameable song that was almost number one a couple of years ago um yeah there's there's something there in the novelty song um that is a kind of there's something aggressive about forcing something unpleasant into the charts over the objections of the BBC um the BBC uh you know famously called auntie right <laughs> it's, it's a, this great British institution and a, a pillar of the establishment and if you can force it to play agadu for several weeks you've really really given the finger to 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 the the ruling class i was just going to say there's something about that to to yeah. like the the sort of comedy song and like because again when these songs get to the top of the charts and stay that's because people are <laughs> doing it they're not oh, yes they're, it's not top down that's bottom up and it might even yep. be presented by by those on yep. the on the up um that yep. this is happening uh and there's um but yeah the re- part of the reason i brought up boris johnson there i mean you talked about how incomprehensible that something could be at the top but i guess the, the last thing before since we're you know talking about British culture and politics and things like that, just before we go on to talk about the interesting structure of your book. Um, and then, you know, your work with the publisher and all that in the last part of the interview. Sure. Um, 
was there lots of music written about Boris Johnson? Uh, well, I, I alluded to it, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how well your podcast tolerates obscenity. Oh yeah, um, explicit. We've got an so e. the, um, a couple of years ago. So yes, I think it was two Christmases ago. Oh, and again, this last Christmas, perhaps. Um, uh, a band called the Cunts, spelled with a K, just you know, just to distance themselves. Uh, uh, nearly made it to number one with a song called Boris Johnson is a fucking cunt. Uh, and th- so this is, this, this is, you know, something that the British public or a significant portion of the British public conspired to inflict on the rest of the British public. Um, it, it, it's sort of it's characteristic. <laughs> uh, uh, Maybe if they call what? it Boris Johnson, is a Cupid stunt, uh, they might've gotten away with it. That they might have got all the way to number one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but, but, but on those sort of, but sort of seriously, what, 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 was there lots of stuff written about Boris Johnson or not? A, no, not, that's not that. that like, yeah. No, not, not much. Uh, he, he, I can only really speculate about why not, except that he really, he wasn't around anywhere near as long as Thatcher. Um, uh, the, uh, commoners choir, um, uh, project, um featuring Boff Wally, uh formerly of Chumbawamba. Uh the Commoners Choir, they sing choral music. Um, not your boring old um monks singing choral music. This is political choral music. Um uh, they they had a song uh about um uh Boris Johnson's head on a stick. Um punning on the, the the mop of his uh, of his hair um uh mopping with Boris Johnson's head on a stick uh, but no uh, uh, I re- I really don't think anyone is ever going to have the sheer number of songs written about them that Margaret Thatcher had written about her much to Liz Truss's chagrin well, yeah. that's, what she, that's <laughs> what she was aiming for yeah um, no, yeah I, yeah yeah that is actually that actually just that is actually is a great probably place to 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 end it on right because like the, you know, particularly this part of the discussion because you talk about backwards looking nostalgia that's how we started this interview but you know the the Liz Truss's complete petard of a policy that she announced you know shortly after becoming prime minister was explicitly based but more or less on like being the new Iron Lady and mm-hmm. um, you know if if there are people who think that there's there's a chance of going back to that, um, not openly, <laughs> uh, not not in British politics, um, yeah. it appears. But uh, so to move on just to the last part of the interview, where we talk about your experience writing and as an author and finding a publisher and things like that. I wanted to ask you first, um, how did you come up with, do you, do you remember coming up with the idea for having mixtapes? So throughout the book, you've and in, in the table of contents, you'll see it. It's amazing. You know, the, the book is structured around these mixtapes, which are sort of like lists of songs uh, related to the co- sort of content of that chapter. But in, it's it's sort of it's super interesting and as an approach to kind of history, right? Because if you actually listen to those songs, you'd learn a lot about that time and that topic. Uh, but yeah. do you remember, was, was that, did you come up with the idea for the mixtapes and then say, what would that would be a great idea for writing a book around? Or were you writing the book when you came up with that idea? So again, an, an evolution. The, the the first iteration of the book, before I ever started writing it, uh, the idea was to focus on maybe a dozen songs and and write a history um, around those songs. Uh, and I very quickly realized that, that what was at stake here 
wasn't a dozen or even maybe 20 uh, key songs, but the very fact that there were hundreds of them, uh, literally hundreds of songs. I think there are 500 songs referenced in the book, something like that. Um, and the, 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 uh, then, then it became necessary to sort of organize the, the chaos of 500 voices. And the mixtape suggested itself as a, as a, a notional way of organizing it, uh, simply because um, the mixtape was a very distinctly early 80s invention. Um, the, the, the cassette as a format came into its own in the very early 80s. And for a while there, the mixtape was how we communicated with one another. Uh, if you wanted to, to tell someone you liked them, you made them a mixtape. If you if you wanted people to know who you were at the moment, you made them a, a mixtape that really uh, sh- showed your, uh, your 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 creds. Right. <laughs> um, so so there was that element to it. The um, the uh, uh, again the, the nostalgia of the mixtape, uh, but fundamentally it was it was a way of uh, asserting that. What matters here is not the individual song, the individual artist, uh, but the sheer volume of voices raised against Thatcher and Thatcherism. You you asked uh, you were speaking earlier about how many of these um, artists, even at the time, were a little skeptical about whether they were doing any good at all, let alone changing the world. But part of the thesis of the book is you, you don't change the world overnight. Um, and, and, and with one song, um, and that the real value of these songs perhaps isn't uh, what they accomplished at the at the time, which objectively probably wasn't much, but the fact that they are a record. Um, in this most straightforward way, a, a, a record is a record of a time and place, and we can refer to it, and we can refer back to it as an alternative to the kinds of revisionist histories that are emerging uh, in which Thatcher gets reinvented as some kind of strong, uh, almost messianic figure in, in British politics and history. It's interesting. Um, one, one thing in addition to these mixtapes, uh, one thing you have, you have a 57 page section in your book uh, of, of the discography. Uh, and uh, again, it's, it's both a historical record, but also like, you know, this is like history it's not sort of learning history through music or history as music. It's like, no, no, this was the music people living, breathing people were making at the time yeah. and listening to at the time. And so a discography is, is, is much more than, you know, just a list of songs and bands, but actually a kind of, I don't know what to call it. Uh, but I, I, I don't know what to call it either. Um, I have to thank uh, my editor, Ramsey, uh, for, for the, for the, discography he insisted on it uh, and it turned out to be one of the most enjoyable things to write it, it, it's surprisingly difficult to say something cogent about a band in two sentences uh, so finding ways of um in in two sentences suggesting wh- where this band fits into the great flow of these voices was a really interesting exercise uh, and fun, um, I gather, uh, because uh, so you, you mentioned, you know, this the song you were talking about before that was awful. Um, you're actually quite explicit in the book that this book, the, the, the sort of main content of it is not about assessing the value of songs right? <laughs> or, like, you know, or the quality, like whether they're good or bad. Like, although you do have opinions about those things, 
you know, that's obviously that's not what it's about. Um, but just to give people a sense of the flavor. So there's like this 57 page thing where, I mean, you know, there's a couple hundred sort of bands, I think sort of, you know, that Hugh sort of takes the opportunity to actually tell you his opinion about, uh, in a funny way. Um, and, uh, I'm just going to pick a couple, not at, well, the first one is not at random, but like, you know, your section on Morrissey um, <laughs> and it goes, goes like this. Before he became a right wing knob, Stephen Morrissey was the lead singer for the Smiths. He was a knob then too, but he was our knob. Uh, his first solo album, Viva Hate, which included Bengali and platforms was the first sign that something was horribly wrong. Uh, uh Knob is is the perfect word for uh, Morrissey, of whom it's the I, only available. Like I am world. a big fan, but yeah. sorry, it's the only available word word for for what Morrissey has become. Did I ever tell you about when I saw him perform in Paris one time? I don't think so. Um, uh, he, I remember him doing two things. Um, one was interacting with the crowd. One was people would try and talk in the front row. Would try and talk to him in French, and he would go, "What was that? What was that?" <laughs> Um, and, 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 but the other thing he did was he, he gave us like, he, he came up in real time with like a perfect Morrissey song title. Uh, so there was someone at the, in front waving a sort of poster at him and he goes, he goes, he reaches down and he picks it up and he goes, what's this, what's this, is this a poster for your band? You'll never make it, but thank you. Yep. Which was just like, wow, that's <laughs> it's not just for the songs uh that he that he can come up with things like that um uh let me see if i can find another funny one here though um well anyway i won't i won't ruin it for everybody but you know there's more there's more humor um and but a lot of great details in there too like you know probably things that would actually i would imagine be really hard to find um you know like uh you know about bands called like the mob or modern english and momus and and things like that i mean i'm just looking at the m's here but you know there's just if if you're into if you're into music like popular music basically like you should definitely get this book almost just for that discography and just reading through it because it's just amazing um but on that note so you've done so there's a couple of sort of you know really interesting things that you've done in the book uh not just in terms of content but in terms of form with these mixtapes with uh this long discography and things like that how did you go about looking for a publisher when you decided you had this book idea at what stage were you and what stage were you at when you said i'm going to like approach publishers at a, at a fairly late stage, um, I, I did send a, a couple of prospectuses out to academic presses early in the process um, and got very little interest. For I think understandably, it's a, a difficult book to explain in abstract. Um, and as I was going along, I realized that uh, I probably wasn't looking for an academic publisher at all. Uh, if uh, if I was looking for an academic press, I was going to have to write about this stuff in a straightforwardly academic way and um, realize I didn't want to, that, that, that there wasn't a good academic way uh, to do what I wanted to do here. So I wound up looking for um, publishers, not academic publishers, but publishers who uh, do have a book list that features uh, scholarly work. Uh, and uh, PM uh, turned out to be kind of an ideal fit. Um, uh, they operate as an anarchist collective, which appealed to me uh, for fairly obvious thematic reasons. Um, but they, 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 they publish 
history, politics, um, theory, philosophy. Uh, they publish on um, punk studies, particularly. Uh, I've got a strong line in punk studies. So it became a kind of natural home for the project. Uh, and a happy coincidence that Ramsey Kanan, uh, my editor, uh, happened to be uh, in that scene in Scotland in, in the 80s. Uh, he was the lead singer for a band called Political Asylum out of Stirling. So there was a natural affinity there as well. Um, for me, part of the, 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 the big appeal of publishing outside of academia was the opportunity to write in a way um, accessible to a broader audience. Uh, my, my first book, like almost all academic publications, went into a thousand university libraries and has been checked out once. You know, uh, I really wanted to write something that would um, take the fruits of. Um, uh, the the my uh, employment and <laughs> redistribute it a little, uh, add to the commonwealth of knowledge rather than sit on dusty bookshelves. So um, uh, P, the fact that PM Press uh, are a trade publisher rather than a, an academic press was very appealing to me. And um, for anyone out there with a book idea who's never gone through that process before, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. Did you, I mean, you obviously did your homework about them before you approached them, but how did you approach them? Like, did you write them up? Did you look up how to write a query letter and, you know, how to pitch a book and, and all that kind of stuff? Or did you just email them with a book idea or how did you get in touch? Yeah. Boy, I kind of wish I remembered. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain I just followed the advice on their uh, the, their page, on okay. their web page. Um, I, don't, I don't think I did anything dramatic to, to get anyone's attention. Um, they were just on my list of really interesting publishers. Um, and, and I mean, I'd love to claim I did something clever, but I just happened to send the manuscript to the one editor in North America who would be interested. Um, I, I, in, in retrospect, it's it's a miracle that the thing got published. Um, but I'm very glad it did and very grateful to PM Press um, uh, that they have a really strong record of publishing uh, urgently important uh, stuff. Um, I mean, the Another another reason I went looking for uh, non-academic publishers is the turnaround in academic publishing is so damn slow. Um, ironically, the uh, the book got delayed a number of times, um, but for the best possible reason, uh, because precisely because PM Press is nimble enough uh, to to publish stuff that is really really timely. And uh, during, during the uh, Trump administration, particularly, PM Press constantly had things that urgently needed addressing. Uh, so this book of about uh, Thatcher's Britain, which really wasn't going to go st stale, or at least not more stale, uh, just, just kept getting put put back a few months. Uh, I was I was very happy about that. I, I um, uh, took the opportunity to keep adding to that discography. Um, it's the kind of project that never really ends. Um, even this morning, I thought of another Billy Bragg song. I really should have stuck in there somewhere. 
Yeah, that reminds me actually just before I let you go, uh, finally, after our feature length interview almost here, um, you actually do mention uh, towards the end of the book that the original title for the book was This Is Not Enough. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And and you, you, you sort of, I mean, there's a term for this in rhetoric, but you talk about the things you you didn't get to talk about. Um, oh, but it's one of my favorite <laughs> chapters. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just just to give people, you know, a sense of like, you know, uh, that there's just this this wide breadth of things that that you uh, talks about not getting to talk about, like fox hunting and animal rights, for example, oh, which were a they were a big deal when I moved to the UK. Um, uh, and you know the very particular sense in which fox hunting resonates in a society where it's kind of like very hierarchical um not not just in a kind of money sense but in, in in more historical kind of you know senses and you know the idea of the fox hunt which is this very performative thing that only very wealthy people can do but is abusive of helpless creatures is more than a metaphor um you know and and uh you know it's one of the reasons it it, it resonates so much in British society, but again, but again, like just leaving aside that part of it, the animal, animal rights is the big deal during that, during this period. Um, and of course, you know, it's still a big deal now, but something that there was a lot of music written about, um, you know, there's things, the things you write about, you know, sort of, you know, gender and sexuality and things like that, which were other things that you wish you could have written more about. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of room for a sequel, Hugh, if you can convince PM press to, to do another one. I've, I'll do my best. Uh, well, uh, Hugh, thanks very much for taking time out of your evening to uh, talk to our audience. And uh, thank you very much for the great book. Thank you, Len. It's been a pleasure. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.